The following podcast was produced by Latter-day Radio, originally broadcast on KLO in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information, visit latterdayradio.com. We're back on the air here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk, broadcasting today, as always, from the intersection of faith and freedom. Our guests today are the Lears, Phil and Doreen Lear, who just got back last month from their mission in the area office in Frankfurt, Germany. But you didn't actually live in Frankfurt, did you, Phil? Tell us about the little village you were from and and the wonderful circumstances in which you found yourself. There are there were approximately twenty six, twenty seven uh, senior couple missionaries assigned to the area office when we arrived in November of two thousand sixteen. Five of those couples actually lived about fifteen kilometers away uh, to the northwest in a town in a village called Friedrichdorf. Frederick's village is is how it's pronounced. Fred's, Fred's place. Fred's place, yes. <laughs> which in itself was a suburb of Bad Homburg, one of the wealthier uh, uh, um, cities or uh, towns in Germany. Uh, and we were nestled in the forests uh, at the foot of the Taunus Mountains. And so we were an absolutely gorgeous greenbelt um, area. Uh, the historical connection for me with Friedrichdorf is that I'd tracked it out in um, July of, uh, or in April, um, May and June of uh, 1965 when I was a missionary assigned in Bad Homburg. So for me, it was going home. It, it changed, of course, but uh, it really was going home in a sense. And uh, the development of the church there astounded me. We, on our first Sunday, we walked into a brand new, uh, technically advanced stake center. Uh, and 51 years or 50 years before that, uh, we met in a rented hall. There were 10 of us at, on a good Sunday, and two of those were missionaries. And here we were in a fully constituted ward in the Friedrichdorf stake, and it was like walking into a, a, a meeting house for a sacrament meeting in in the states or in a in a in a place that had a very high population of uh, of members. Some of these members were fourth generation. Um, uh, um, Excellent uh, priesthood leadership and and uh, 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 leadership in in the uh, women's organizations in the primary uh, and and so it was it it was a testimony to me uh, about how the church does progress uh, and especially uh, in in Germany where we were. Uh, of the change in the 51 years that I had been gone. That's why it's important to have a historical lens on when we when we look at the church, when we look at the church growth, and not get discouraged because the Lord has a plan, and he's going to execute that plan if we'll just be patient with him and let him do his job and not complain along the way. We were uh, up there while they were doing that construction, uh, we came home from our mission just a month before the Lears left on theirs, and 
we have some dear friends that uh, we worked with in the Frankfurt Mission Office, the Fingerlies. And from their balcony, they can see the, the stake center and just yards beyond that, the Frankfurt Temple, which is still under construction. And do we have any news about when that might be finished? Yes, their, their actual uh, dedication uh, dates, uh, whether they're final or not, I, uh, or rededication dates, I don't know. But it has been announced for 2019. The temple was built, I think, in the, in the 80s and then reconstructed. They found a lot of problems when they got down and at the foundation and had to do a lot of uh, uh, refitting, but uh, it's a wonderful place. And let's let's talk specifically about individuals, people. And we've got on our little bullet point here the first Romanian sister missionary, which. Uh, I think, from what I've heard, is a fascinating story. So this is like the homecoming speech that you would like to, to, to always give, but you've got a lot more time than you normally would have. Actually, uh, uh, she was Bulgarian. Uh, and I think I misstated Romanian, but it's, she's Bulgarian. Transylvania, Bulgaria, Romania, <laughs> Moldavia, it's all kind of where yeah. spicy food comes from. <laughs> And uh, good faithful people, uh, Valentina uh, now Brown uh, was the first uh, woman missionary called after the fall of the Iron Curtain from Bulgaria, and she um, uh, uh, one missionary one so she and she was also the second missionary called. So the first missionary was a male, and he was uh, he was called uh, uh, to serve, I, I believe, internally in um, Bulgaria or ne- neighboring Romania. I don't recall, but she was the first woman. Uh, she and uh, a brother. Uh, heard the lessons. She was a university student, uh, heard the lessons, and then um, uh, uh, shortly thereafter received a call to Latvia. Uh, So this was the first time uh, as well that um, missionaries uh, from behind the Iron Curtain were allowed to leave their native countries and go to another country. So she she was the first on uh, on two counts. She uh, had a wonderful mission in uh, Latvia, uh, primarily with uh, with uh, American companions, and uh, fulfilled that mission. Uh, finished her degree, uh, and then came to the United States. Uh, to do a master's in linguistics at BYU. Now, her name uh, was not Brown, spelled B-R-O-W-N. It wasn't Brown as in B-R-A-U-N in German, uh, but it was, it was uh, she married, uh, as it turns out, my nephew, uh, Kimball Brown, uh, she finished her uh, her degree. Uh, he went on to uh, complete degrees uh, in um, 
uh, master's degrees, uh, two of them, I believe. And uh, then I went to work for the United States Army and was stationed in um, um, just in a village just south of the Frankfurt uh, Rhein-Main Air Base, Moorfelden. Driven past there many times. And where that is. And so during the two years we were there, we had interaction with uh, the Brown uh, family. We were close to them before uh, we met and close to them after. So uh, here's uh, the long and the short of this with uh, Valentina uh, is that she, um, uh, she had two milestones being uh, the first. She was clearly a pioneer. We took her oral history shortly before we left Germany. And and uh, faith-promoting experiences about uh, uh, how she um, met with the missionaries, had uh, gained a testimony uh, of the Book of Mormon, uh, and within uh, months after baptism, uh, chose to serve a mission, and uh, and has touched hundreds hundreds of lives uh, since then. She was very active in the refugee effort uh, that descend, uh, that uh, occurred in Frankfurt. Frankfurt was one of the centers of the refugee influx from uh, not only the Middle East, but also uh, from North Africa. Uh, Germany had an open arms uh, policy, uh, um, and uh, she and her husband uh, established a... Uh, uh, a nonprofit uh, organization that collected bicycles and repaired them and uh, placed them with refugee centers. The refugees, of course, came to Germany without any means of transportation. And within three years of arriving, they had to learn sufficient German to obtain jobs that were self-sustaining. Uh, and to do that, they needed transportation. And so uh, uh, here's the, the bicycles were donated. They were raised initially in the American uh, Wiesbaden uh, ward uh, in, there in the Frankfurt area. And they extended that out to uh, to other uh, to German uh, wards who got word of what was going on, and so uh, we also donated our our two bicycles when uh, when we left. He but, buys them on eBay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I. Uh, so, her, the you know the blessings of the gospel in her life's now been extended uh, uh, to many many people. Like the little phrase that I've taught our audience before, that Zufall ist wie Gott anonym bleibt, which means coincidence is how God remains anonymous. These so-called coincidences that we see, we start connecting the dots, as you were talking about earlier, Doreen, is that the Lord can see into the future, and he just makes these things available. The point is, we need to be able to listen carefully, and uh, when he speaks to us in a still, small voice, we need to respond. We, we should tell you that these oral histories are sent, uh, oral histories or anything digital is sent back to Salt Lake City, and they're stored. 
uh, and uh, they're posted to the church history uh, library catalog that is uh, available online. Now, they may not be available for uh, several decades because of privacy laws um, oh, available okay. to the to the public, but uh, but they are there and they they uh, constitute uh, part of the record that Joseph was told to uh, create and maintain in the 21st section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And in case you just joined us, we're here with uh, Phil and Doreen Lear on Latter-day Radio 1430 KLO World Class Talk. They completed a mission, and they're back home, but they still have work to do. What work do you still have to do? Uh, we have 70,247 images <laughs> from the arc from German histories in the east the former East Germany the German Democratic Republic or in German known as the DDR uh, that documents uh, the life of the Saints uh, during uh, uh, from the from the beginning of the church in Saxony in particular uh, in Dresden and Leipzig uh, up through uh, the two world wars Nazism uh, uh, communism and socialism, and it's a rich, rich uh, heritage and history. We'll talk more about that after the break. Particularly, let's learn about Johann Henrich Burkhardt and Joseph Ott. These are some stories that we hope you share with us after the break here on Latter-day Radio, 1430 KLO, World Class Talk. Please come back. We have a lot more German and European history to share with you. Here on Latter Day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk with the with the Lears, Phil and Doreen Lear, and we'd like to talk about a specific person who was a pioneer and a stalwart in Germany during the time of the DDR uh, um, or the East German regime. His name was Johann Henry Burkhardt. Tell us about about him, uh, Phil and uh, how he led by example for a long, long time. Well, I'll start, but Doreen has quite a bit to say about this uh, as well. Um, Johann Henry Burkhardt was a full-time missionary uh, during the, that short window between the end of World War II and when the, uh, uh, the Soviet... Uh, um, the communist regime in East Germany, uh, then known as, uh, became known as the German Democratic Republic in English, um, took hold. So it, this was 1952. He'd been a missionary for about a year and a half. Uh, he was in meetings in Berlin that President uh, McKay attended. And President McKay pulled him aside and said, Elder Burkhardt, or words to this effect, uh, I'm calling you to be the ecclesiastical, I'm calling you to be the, the second counselor in the North German Mission Presidency. Um, but within a couple of years, that meant he was the ecclesiastical leader in East Germany, 
not including Berlin, because Berlin was the, still half of Berlin was was free, and it was presided over by uh, the North German Mission President. But as as this second counselor, he functioned for nearly uh, three or four decades as the leader the de facto leader of the church. And he never got released. And he never got released. Well, yes, he did. He, he was briefly released to get married, but that's a story. Um, <laughs> For about a weekend. Uh, and, and so here this young man uh, uh, from Saxony, uh, one of the states in, uh, in East Germany, uh, uh, was the leader of the church. Now, he was the leader of the church from the, this 1952, again, I say de facto leader, uh, from 1952 until about 1969, when he was then called to be the president of the East German Mission. Um, uh, he lived in Dresden. Uh, he, he, of course, missionaries could not be married, young uh, proselyting missionaries. But eventually he met a return, uh, a, a return missionary, and uh, they fell in love, and he uh, wanted to be... He wanted to be married, and he had to contact his ecclesiastical leaders, who were <laughs> who were in Salt Lake, uh, and ask to be released as a proselyting missionary, so that he and his uh, fiance could go to Zollikofen, uh, uh, or near Bern, Switzerland, uh, to the temple. Now, this was 1955 is when the temple was opened. So uh, uh, they were allowed, uh, he, he was released. They, uh, I was about to say serendipitously, but uh, that Lord's hand was in this. They both received permits to leave uh, the GDR for three days. And uh, they traveled by train were sealed or married sealed and uh, in Switzerland in Switzerland and then returned and he went back to Dresden and she went back to her maiden home because there was no place for them to have an apartment in Dresden that had been so terribly firebombed in February of 1945 uh, and they lived apart for 14 years. Uh, do you want to pick up this story, uh, Sister Lear? Well, I can do that. I think partly they didn't have money either. That's right. It seems crazy that they would be married and not live together. But um, do you want me to talk about President Monson? Yes. Years and years later, after they had been married 13 years, was that correct? I don't think it was that long. Anyway, it was a very long time. President Monson asked uh, President Burkhart about his wife and family, and he admitted that he didn't even see her ever. And President Monson was, excuse me, you have been married this long and you do not live with your wife? He insisted that President Burkhart travel 
and see her 36 hours every week. He insisted upon that. So, of course, he obeyed his instructions, and they did not actually live together for quite a long time. I don't know what the amount of years was. It was you? 1969 that they that finally they came. Finally got so to they'd live been married. Together. They'd been married 14 years. Yes, and he visited on the weekends only, and they did end up having two children, which is very nice. But he adored his wife, and we had this lovely interview with him. And he said, "You know, I have to say, his wife is now deceased, and she's been deceased for a number of years. That he adored." his wife because she never once complained which is quite a miracle in itself that she she knew his responsibilities and she knew what a man of God he was and it was okay with her to be living just with her parents for all those years because she honored how honorable he was. What a great story. And in case you just joined us, this is Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. Our guests are Phil and Doreen Lear. We're talking about the history of the saints in uh, in Europe, particularly in this case in uh, the former East Germany, GDR. So continue the story. It, it, has, it has a happy ending, though, right? It has a happy ending, I think. I mean, life was difficult. What we, I don't think Henry Burkhart ever told anybody from the church. He was literally imprisoned during the communist period. And he was allowed out of church to go to church. And there were I don't know if you want to call them spies. There were people in the congregation, communists, secret secret police, police, Stasi, watching over every little thing that happened. As far as the secret police were concerned, is like, come on, a church from the United States of America gathering together here. They've got to be some kind of spies. And they were so suspicious. The church members had to be very careful what they said in church. They had to even be careful of the hymns that were chosen so that there wasn't anything too spiritual or or resembling God is our leader, those kinds of things. They had to be very careful about what they spoke about. They had to be very careful. And this is part of our church, is to honor the laws and um, of the, how do you say that? Honor, uh, to, honor be subject, to be yes. subject to kings, presidents, rulers, magistrates, and to honor, obey, and sustain the law right. of the land. Yeah. And at the end, because of that, line in the article of faith the Germans, the East Germans really learned to honor the church members but in the meantime while Henry Burkhardt was imprisoned he literally was tortured he never told a soul but there was a period where they really did not believe 
that he was what he said he was, that he had to have been some kind of spy. But later on, I'm going to let Elder Lear continue with the story where um, it ended up. We got a temple in Freiburg, Germany, because of this man and his honorable um, character. They, <clears throat> he, he taught and instructed the priesthood in uh, the uh, German Democratic Republic that there was to be no denigration of the regime from the pulpit or in their in their daily conversations, uh, that he said, we believe that this tenet of the article of faith that we are to sustain uh, uh, the leaders of the country and the laws of the country uh, so far that as they do not conflict with our core beliefs. And uh, uh, as a result of that, uh, people actually, they actually talked about supporting the government, that they should always be found to uh, support the government and sustain uh, the law. And the, the LDS community became known for that. In particular, Johann Henry Burkhardt became known as uh, one who could be trusted. All the other churches were, were uh, bad-mouthing the re regime and were suppressed in large measure because of it. Uh, the church didn't avoid all suppression by any means. And that's, what, uh, that's one of the things that we've been documenting. Uh, we just felt this draw, uh, in part due to the Barches, who were this family who were raised in East Germany. Both were engineers. They were in Berlin. Uh, and they knew where all the records were. And so we made it one of the foci of, of, of our service to gather as many records as we could from the many different areas of East Germany uh, to document the lives of the saints uh, during that uh, nearly 40-year period. What a great story. We're almost out of time here, but we'll be back with the Lears after this uh, this commercial break. Doreen's got something that she's got some pre-verbal tension. We hope she can handle <laughs> handle that for the next four minutes, but we'll be back on Latter-day Radio, 1430 KLO, World Class Talk, after these messages. More faith-affirming podcast content from Latter-day Radio coming your way. Stick around. This is Latter-day Radio here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. Our guests today are the Lears, Phil and Doreen Lear. Doreen, how's your pre-verbal tension? Have you... <laughs> you've, you've been holding on to this thought ever since uh, uh, we uh, went to break. We're going to talk about the temple, weren't we? In front, in... Yes, we'll okay. talk about how the temple happened. All right. Let's, uh, let's hear the story. I think Elder Lear is better with the details, but the bottom line is the members of the church were having to go to Bern, Switzerland to, to attend the temple. If they could get out. If, if they, they could, get, could out. get out. Talking and that's about members exactly, of East Germany. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And 
It was not an easy thing and probably pretty darn impossible to get a recommendation to leave the country to attend the temple because, of course, the East Germanies would assume they would not come back. So, huge problem. And this Henry Bearcart, I'm afraid I'm going to tell the story wrong. Will you please tell the story of there were two people that went to Berlin and spoke to very German anti-Christians about making it easier to get out of the country just to go to Bern. Elder Monson. Uh, Elder Monson and Henry Burkhardt met with the head of the East German government. This is Eric Honecker. Honecker, that's what I thought. And they petitioned him to allow the East German members to leave on a three-day pass to go to Zollikofen, or Bern, uh, temple in Switzerland, uh, because there were no temple facilities, and the people weren't allowed to go. there Up until about 1955 uh, or so, uh, they could get out to go to the temple, but then uh, uh, the clamp was tightened on uh, mobility in East Germany, and people were not allowed to leave the country because often they wouldn't return. And so uh, Elder, Elder Monson and Henry Burkhardt uh, went to Berlin, sat down with Elder Honecker and uh, his staff to ask them that this petition be granted, that the members be allowed. And he said, you, Elder Monson said, you know our people. They're trustworthy. They will come back. They will come back. They have family here. They have jobs here. They will come back. And uh, you know that we believe in honoring, sustaining, and obeying the law of the land. They will come back. And in a move that no one anticipated, uh, at least knowingly anticipated, Eric Honecker said, We know you people. I know who you are, Thomas Munson. And I know this man, Henry Burkhart, or words to that effect. And we know that uh, he is trustworthy. He's been an example. He has always been truthful uh, with us. Um, and we invite you to build a temple in East Germany. And that's how the temple came about. Now, there, of course, there'd been a lot of prayer um, petitioning, I'm sure, on part of the brethren and local leaders and members. Um, but it, be, it was because of the example of Henry Burkhart in large measure that uh, that invitation uh, for the church to build the temple uh, was made. Now, we would look at that through different eyes, that the Lord, uh, uh, the Lord had prepared uh, the situation. He'd allowed for the meeting. Uh, this wasn't a coincidence, but the result was... Uh, um, uh, was not what was expected by Elder Monson, as we understand it, and certainly not by Henry Burkhart, whom we interviewed. And it sounded like he said, well, why don't you build a temple here? 
<laughs> Almost in that tone of voice, we are told. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> then you that don't have it. to try to go anywhere. But then you can imagine the, dif uh, the, uh, the difficulties uh, with that in a suppressive regime uh, that wants access to everything. Uh, how, how, uh, how would the inspectors... Uh, from the regime uh, enter the building once it had been dedicated. So it wasn't it wasn't just uh, um, a, a smooth straight path after that decision was made or that offer was extended to the church. There were still hurdles uh, that had to uh, uh, had to be crossed. But again, it was because of the example of Henry Burkhart that they were allowed to get around every one of them and the trust that they developed. Uh, in the church. It's an interesting comparison to Rousseau's doctrine of civil disobedience, isn't it? It's a direct uh, contrast. And sometimes we get impatient with policies and we think, hmm, I'm just going to uh, stir things up. And we see that right now in this country with, with uh, all of the... Uh, Disunity we have in the country. Mm -hmm. So that's an important lesson that we can all take from and why it's important for us to know our history so that we can learn from it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, this, uh, uh, this vignette about Henry Burkhardt, both as the ecclesiastical leader and uh, as uh, the example that allowed this door to be open, are all going to be memorialized in the fourth volume of The Saints. And the reason that we interviewed uh, uh, Henry Burkhardt is actually a re-interview from an earlier one taken by Matt Heiss of the Church History Department in the early 1990s, uh, was to fill in some gaps in, in the history, the, the marriage experience, living apart for 14 years, and other experiences he had that were not as fully documented. We went back in to uh, uh, conduct that interview in German, and uh, he was 93 years old. He was alert. He was totally uh, in control of his faculty. And he's still with us? And he's still, he's with, still us. with us. Fantastic. Yeah. We were actually told that he is a very humble man, and it might be really difficult to get an interview with him because he does not like talking about himself. And yet, here's the spirit again. He made that appointment with us, and Salt Lake City sent a number of questions for us to ask, and um, the spirit was there. We, he welcomed us into his apartment and had a very nice apartment, and we sat down, and Elder Lear started asking questions, and the words just flowed. He was so kind and it was a wonderful interview. It was a wonderful experience. Of course, it's all in German. I didn't understand a word, but it was lovely to have been there. I mean, the spirit was very strong. It spirit, was an amazing experience. The spirit spoke to you. Absolutely. Well, we, our, our takeaway from that experience is that we had been in the presence of a holy man. Yes. He, um, he eventually was released from his... 30-year-plus uh, uh, assignment as the ecclesiastical leader uh, and was called to be the pres first president of the Freiberg Temple. 
Wow. Which was closed for a while. When It was closed when we were there, and then it opened just before we left, reopened. What year was that temple built, do you remember? 1975. 75. I was a, I thought it was 85, but that's... I am, I am also of the opinion that temple made a crack in the iron in the iron curtain and helped it open up so that now all those people can have all the blessings and all of the freedoms that we we enjoy in the west was it 75 i may be wrong on my dates but i thought it was the 70s at least that it was announced because it preceded the frankfurt uh, oh yeah the frankfurt temple which was dedicated in 87 yeah, yeah. i think it was at least 10 years older than the frankfurt yeah. temple we have testimonies of the before and after of temples. May I speak about the Paris temple? We went to interview President Babin, who was the mission president. I think he had just been released. And how discouraged he was. Um, he wanted to see French people join the church. And the missionaries were very active. They were baptizing, but they were baptizing people from China. They were baptizing people from Africa. And um, the French can be a little intimidating, as we know. And these gentle missionaries tended to go off to these more simple people because the French would not open their doors to them. And this um, mission president was a French man. He wanted to see the French people join the church to build up the wards and stakes in France because the ones who are not French tend to leave the country. And we had an interview with him. Then we ended up coming back after the temple was open, you know, the open house, then the dedication of the temple, and things had changed. We got the opportunity to go to the temple and talk to the people that were there. And they said, you cannot believe the difference. French people are so touched by this beautiful building. They're welcome to go in and sit on the grounds. And particularly, there's always problems with the people that live right by the temple. When a temple is announced and it is going to be built, so many people in the neighborhood are upset and don't want it to happen. They all were so apologetic. It, of course, is a gorgeous building and beautiful patio with always the beautiful landscaping. It is a gorgeous temple. And, and a wonderful visitor center there with it. wonderful visitor center. And it's just an amazing place. So things have turned around in Paris, and there are many more baptisms, French people baptisms. Well, we'll be back after the break, after the news, here on Latter-day Radio, 1430 KLO World Class Talk. Stay tuned. We're going to still be here when you get back. Latter-day Radio is the originator of this faith-affirming podcast. If you like it or have comments or requests, send us an email at latterdayradio.com. You're listening to Latter-day Radio here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk, broadcasting from the intersection of faith and freedom. And that's just not a slogan, Phil. That's what we're talking about today. Faith and freedom go together, as we've discovered from your 
explanation about uh, East Germany and how the saints endured their lack of freedom, but they kept their faith. So we have some more great stories to tell. I would like to hear about Joseph Ott. I know you've got some others on the list, and we'll try to get to many, as many of these as we can, but these folks have so many good stories. Joseph Ott, Joseph A. Ott, was a young man from uh, Virgin, Utah, uh, who was called on a mission. He was a young married, and actually newly married, called on a mission to Germany. Wait. He, in, we're talking uh, 1890, 1895. He and seven others uh, uh, took the voyage from the United States to Hamburg, Germany, in the middle of December. And I'm a Navy man, and I've crossed the Atlantic. Uh, and the North Atlantic is a brutal trip uh, in December, in the winter. At any rate, they uh, pull into the harbor... <coughs> Uh, up to the up to the quay, uh, they're uh, disembarking, and uh, Joseph Ott uh, somehow stumbled on the gangplank and pitched into the freezing cold water. And this is, of course, the northern part of Germany, uh, not far uh, from the. Um, um, from the North Sea on one side and the uh, Baltic Sea on the on the other side of the Denmark arch archipelago. At any rate, uh, he was fished out of the water and uh, lingered for a couple of weeks under the care of a, a member, a member family uh, with... Uh, all the ailments, uh, ailments that one could um, imagine having uh, survived a dip in freezing water. Uh, as time drew on, the other seven missionaries has, uh, decided that they needed to go on to Dresden, which was their base, uh, and took the train, departed before Christmas, and... Uh, uh, shortly before Christmas, and uh, uh, arrived in Dresden. Um, uh, Joseph Ott uh, lingered, uh, felt he was getting better, but just was compelled uh, to join his companions in Dresden, and against the protestations of the doctor and uh, the members who were caring from him, uh, also caught a train uh, to Dresden. Uh, he he died within uh, uh, 15, 20 days of arriving in Dresden, was buried in a local uh, uh, cemetery, uh, but he had very disappointed uh, that he had not been uh, able to do any proselyting work uh, among the German people. And uh, uh, he was... Uh, he was <clears throat> uh, prepared for burial and buried by his uh, companions in uh, uh, the St. Paul's uh, Cemetery, the cemetery near the St. Paul's uh, Church in, uh, in Dresden. And that's where the Josephat story really begins. Uh, because the members of, uh, of the branch 
uh, took over uh, the responsibility of caring for the grave. And it's a beautiful... This is in the late 1890s, somewhere. This, he died 18. in January, early January of 19, uh, of 1896. So uh, uh, his, his total mission had uh, covered uh, traveling from Utah to uh, New York, uh, or to the East Coast, from the East Coast to Hamburg, and by train to Dresden, uh, where he eventually succumbed uh, from his experience in the freezing water. Uh, but as I said a moment ago, this is where the story begins. Uh, it wasn't uh, much later when a young, a young woman uh, uh, was tending the grave of a relative in the same cemetery in the vicinity of uh, Josephat's grave. And um, we understand that uh, uh, she was walking past or at least looked up at his tombstone and it was as though uh, a sunbeam struck uh, struck the uh, the tombstone. She went over and read the tombstone that said, here lies uh, Joseph Ayotte, uh, born on such and such a date, died on such and such a date, a missionary of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And she was so taken by the feelings she had standing before that headstone and the fact that it was illuminated when no other gravestone in the vicinity was illuminated. illuminated that she sought out the missionaries of, of this church. Um, the story is that she joined, I think uh, maybe another member of her, her, her family might have joined. This is all documented in Ensign articles and uh, diaries uh, in the church history uh, library. Um, she had 13 children, or she came from a family of 13, and then she had a large family herself, all who became members of the church, all uh, who became uh, among the core of church members who, who then proselyted. So and that she was Joseph Ott's first baptism. She was Joseph, she was Joseph Ott's first baptism, if you will. The, and the, and the, the, the sustained beauty of this experience is that the Dresden branch and wards have maintained that grave since 1896 to the present. And we had opportunity on two occasions uh, to go to the grave site uh, in this cemetery. And it is a gorgeous, it's so well cared for. Uh, uh, there are other members' graves around, uh, a few others uh, uh, in close proximity to his gravesite. But that was the link. That is the the story of Joseph A. Ott. He he was such an example uh, to people, or the story is, has such sustaining power that uh, one of the uh, buildings at the mission training center is called the Joseph A. Ott Building. True. <laughs> True. <laughs> now, it, the gravesite, probably most people don't realize. I certainly didn't. When you get buried in Germany, your gravesite is this beautiful, well-manicured landscaped. They have bushes and flowers, and it's, it's really quite an effort to maintain a, a beautiful gravesite there and his like 
Elder Lear was saying um, is beautiful with flowers and and a number of things. And the gravestone is this very beautiful, white, shiny thing. So if there were to be a sunbeam, it would have been glorious. Interesting. We attended a wedding in St. George, oh, I guess 10 years ago maybe, to uh, my wife's nephew, uh, Robbie Halliday, and he married a not girl uh-huh. from Virgin, Utah. So apparently, this Josephat didn't die f- without any children, right? He had been married. He was brand new married when he was sent on this mission, and we weren't sure, but we actually thought his wife was pregnant. He had only been married for about six weeks or so when he was sent on this mission. So if your last name is Ott, or if you have uh, Ott's in your genealogy, four-generation worksheet, hearken back and see if maybe Joseph Ott was your great-grandfather or something. I, I hope that's the case. hope there's someone listening here that can see, yes, he was. But his work continues even even, even today, given yeah. people the, it's, a, it's important to give other people the opportunity to serve you. And by the way, if you just joined us, this is Latter-day Radio here in 1430 KLO World Class Talk. We're talking with the Lears about history in Europe and what we can learn from it. What can we learn from it, Phil? You've got a lot of other people on this list, on your bullet point list, that we haven't, we don't want to neglect them. Let, let me add a quick postscript uh, to Joseph A. Ott. The grave is maintained by the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, there are now two wards in uh, in Dresden, uh, and they maintain the uh, currently maintain that uh, gravesite. Uh, um, but this. Uh, it was important to the Aaronic priesthood to be involved in that because that was the only way they could do missionary work, um, um, especially during the communist era. And so they gave their service, this Aaronic priesthood gave their service uh, to tending that grave, and it's spectacular, spectacularly uh, tended. Tell us about the Boshes in the East German Mission Youth Choir. This is an interesting, it seems to me like something I'd like to hear about. Yeah, this is one of my favorite experiences of our whole mission. Gervin Bosch was virtually a musician, and his calling in the church was to organize a youth choir. Um... And they decided, or somebody decided, there was going to be a concert in Berlin. And what would the year have been? 1961. 1961. So, of course, he gathered all the youth. That's the amazing part of this story. Is of course he gathered all the young men and young women, teenagers, and they practice all these songs. And he was an amazing man because not only was he just leading songs, but he was teaching the the youth about the songs, about the composer, about the meaning of the songs, particularly if the songs were written about a, a scripture 
they would discuss the scripture and the meaning of the scripture and bring the Holy Ghost into this whole music situation. And again, because during um, these times it was difficult. But the bottom line is they got themselves totally prepared to go to Berlin to this concert two days before the date of the concert. The wall goes up. And there is no way they are going to be allowed to go into West Berlin from where they lived in, I think it was close to Leipzig, well, it was, was he? It was throughout was it East Germany. It was youth yes. from all over East Germany. So here they are. They can't go. They've practiced. So creative... In one year, they decided what they would do is take every single one of these teenagers, boys and girls, members, inactive members, non-member kids, and they planned a two-week bike tour where they would visit small villages all through the area in East, eastern Germany one performance per night. They would stay at ward members' homes and be fed by the church members. And it turned out to be the most amazing experience. The, the end of the story virtually is same thing. The wall goes up, proselyting isn't allowed to happen, and it turned out to be a fantastic missionary tool. What a great story. We've got more of these for you after the break. Come back here to Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. The Lears have another two pages of stories like these, <laughs> if we can get to all of them. This is Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. We'll be right back after these messages. More faith-affirming podcast content from Latter-day Radio coming your way. Stick around. We're back here on Latter-day Radio with the Lears, talking about the importance of history and learning from it. So, Doreen, you didn't get to finish your story about the Evan Bosch Youth Choir and their bicycle tour across East Germany. So we want to hear the rest of the story. Well, I, I finished where I mentioned that it was an amazing proselyting. We all know the effect of beautiful hymns. Beautiful music brings the spirit. And beyond that for the listener, these teenagers in that choir learned from singing and from listening to Gervin Bosch the meaning and the spiritual context of these songs and the importance of the gospel in so many words that the teenagers who were not members joined the church. The teenagers who were inactive reactivated. As they grew older, many of these teenagers, because they did keep this choir going for years, they married and they became very strong members of the church. And actually, they had a reunion probably 20 years later after, and I should say too, this choir was so effective with bringing people into the church just from listening to their music 
that it was really the only proselyting tool that was used for years. But as it turned out, um, after about 10 years or so, 13 years of this youth choir performing, there was no youth in the wards because they were off singing somewhere. And the um, bishoprics of the wards were saying, hey, we have nobody to pass the sacrament anymore. We need to like have these kids come back and attend church. And so they disbanded the choir. But it was an enormous proselyting tool for so many years. And they loved it. The kids themselves loved performing and loved the spirit that was brought to these performances. And they had a reunion and practically everybody showed up. They decided just for fun, you know, with no announcement of this, that they would sing some of the songs that they had sung during the performances. They all got up and they remembered the words. They remembered their parts. And somebody recorded this. And Sister Bosch played the CD it was for us, and Sister Lear was dissolved in tears. I couldn't even speak. The performance was the same kind of performance that would be had if you had practiced for months. They got up and sang. I can't even talk about it right now, but... Sister Bosch gave me a CD of the performance because it was so lovely and it was so touching that that was one of my favorite parts of our mission. Darling Brother Bosch was warm and charming and this darling older couple, so cute. And the amazing thing, too, this was last April that we had this interview and just before we came home from our mission, we did see Sister Bosch um, when we were conducting this camera capture project. And she told us that uh, Brother Bosch had had a terrible stroke. So the Lord, again, knows timing is everything. We're losing these older first members. And... I was so grateful to have been in attendance for this interview, and now um, he was still alive when we left, but it sounded like they're older. We're losing these people. So I'm so grateful to have been there to capture this interview and experience being there and meeting these amazing people. In case you just joined us, this is Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk with the Lears. Phil, do you want to add anything to what your wife said, if that's possible? (laughs) (laughs) Gervin Bosch is also going to be featured in Volume 4 of The Saints along with Henry Burkhart and and others. Um, But again, we were in the presence of uh, a holy man and woman uh, uh, when we conducted that interview, and it was very, uh, very moving. You know, this whole story of the the GDR, DDR, reminds me of the story in the Book of Mormon when these uh, people under... uh, the boot of the the Lamanite overseers humbled themselves 
and embrace the gospel and turn to their roots because outward forces force them to their knees. And uh, we had a wonderful couple in Mainz that were from, originally from Dresden, the Marx family. How I love those people. Their background was uh, similar. Uh, at some point, I'd like to be able to tell that story, but I think it's an important lesson for all of us. It's, uh, you know, the whole Nephite cycle of prosperity, of pride, the fall, repentance, coming back, this whole cycle, and that's what we can learn from history is, as Mormon said, be wise. Don't do what, we've given you this information so that you might learn how not to do the things that we did. And we're seeing that whole cycle right now in the United States, I think. Everyone's speechless. I'm, I'm looking at this list here, and you talk about the Daily Air Visitor's Log. What is the visitor's log, and what does that have to do with our topic today? It. <clears throat> let me tell you what the visitor's log was, and then I'll answer your question. All um, members, uh, families, homeowners, uh, apartment dwellers, uh, were required to maintain a... Uh, a visitor's log, meaning that if people visited them for an overnight stay, the uh, uh, the host uh, had to have them uh, document uh, uh, their names, contact data, uh, government identification number, where they were from, how long they were going to stay, and all of this was put into a published um, form uh, log. Uh, and this was a document that was uh, promulgated by uh, the Stasi, the, the, the secret police. And it, it demonstrates how controlled uh, people were in their movements inside the country. So if, if I were to go to a district conference, for example, in Leipzig, which was one of the church centers uh, during the, uh, the GDR period, uh, the host would have to have me uh, list my name and, and contact data, all the things that I just mentioned. And then, uh, periodically during the year, she had to take that log to the Stasi, the hostess, or host or hostess did, who actually reviewed it and then stamped it as, as approved. And it's just one of those suppressional elements that... Uh, that the people had to live under uh, as they were uh, in the context of church members as they were attempting to live their religion. And it was a common practice for people from outlying areas to come into uh, the conference site in Leipzig. So they'd come from all over. Uh, um, could come in from uh, uh, the, the towns and villages surrounding uh, Leipzig. They would stay overnight with members, and uh, their movement was uh, monitored. Plus the church meetings. There had to be a documentation of who was speaking, 
who was going to say the prayer, what song was sung, and that had to each week be taken to the Stasi to get the stamp of approval. They wanted to know all the activities of what was going on in the area. And for me, being born and raised in America, the thoughts of we don't even start to realize what freedom means here. We're so used to coming and going as we choose. Obviously, freedom of speech, freedom of everything here. And to consider what other people, even in this day, of course, there's many countries where you better watch what you say. You better watch what you do. Um, or people may never see you again. You may disappear. And I think anyone who's born and raised in the United States, we don't have an idea in the least of what freedom really, really means. Not an inkling. We don't know what freedom means until we lose it. I think exactly. that's maybe the lesson from that we can draw from this. Exactly. The this this um, other um, the submitting of the order of the Sunday order of services and the Sunday school classes and the teachers they were not part of the law of the. Um, the log that was a separate uh, uh, that was a separate uh, an example that uh, Doreen was giving us of the suppression that the people were under. Their meetings had to be approved before they could before they could be held, and the Stasi would attend the meetings to make sure that everything that was on the order of service was done. To make sure that church program that we get every week is in order. Imagine if that was a requirement today. <laughs> Don't depart from the program. Well, we're going to depart here for just a few minutes. This is Latter-day Radio. We have uh, Phil and Doreen Lear with us. We, we're running, we only have one more segment left. So we better really hit on the high points when you get back. After these words here on Latter-day Radio, 1430 KLO. Saturday Radio, our final segment with Phil and Doreen Lear. And I am certain, Phil, that not all the miracles and the wonderful stories that you experienced in Germany were from Germany, uh, from your experience in the European mission. Certainly, you travel in, in 38 countries. Share, us, uh, share some other stories with us from other places. Well, let, let me select one. And this is um, a faith story uh, that the church has given uh, the moniker uh, the Slovakian or Slovak miracle. Uh, This has to do with the recognition of the church in Slovakia. After the uh, communist, uh, the Iron Curtain was lifted, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, which had been since the end of World War II, Czechoslovak, World War I, excuse me, Czechoslovakia, went through what we call uh, the, the 
in history speak, uh, the Velvet Divorce, and became their separate com- uh, countries. Well, the church had been recognized, legally recognized, in Czechoslovakia, meaning that it enjoyed all the rights of uh, a, a corporate uh, entity, specifically, and, and could function in preaching and teaching uh, performing uh, ordinances, uh, owning property, and collecting uh, tithes and offerings. Well, after this velvet divorce, uh, everybody assumed that, uh, meaning the legal department in, in uh, the Europe area office and others assumed that we were, we were recognized in Slovakia, and it turns out we weren't. And we were performing baptisms, conducting marriages, we rented halls for people to meet in, and um, in opposition, much opposition of the Catholic Church, it turns out that uh, we were notified that we were not officially recognized, and consequently we could not uh, transmit tithes and offerings uh, to the church. Um, uh, we couldn't technically. We couldn't uh, own buildings. We couldn't uh, own uh, rent uh, meeting halls. We couldn't perform ordinances. Uh, and so uh, this was uh, this velvet divorce occurred in 1990 or so, 1991, shortly after the Iron Curtain lifted. Uh, and for 14 or 15 years after that. We, we've kind of functioned under the radar. The mission, uh, the, uh, the uh, Czech mission, still had responsibility for Czechoslovakia, um, but uh, uh, we were not uh, we were not allowed to really function as a recognized church. Uh, it turned out that in the uh, early uh, 2000s that a, a window opened for us. Uh, there was a law that was uh, legislated that said that uh, if if a church seeking uh, official recognition could obtain 20,000 signatures, that uh, uh, it would be uh, it would be recognized. Uh, and, but it wasn't clear whether that was 20,000 members or 20,000 signatures from Slovakian citizens. They had to be Slovakian citizens. Uh, <clears throat> we received a, a letter ruling from the Ministry of Church, or the uh, Director of Churches, uh, Dr. Jan Joran, uh, saying that it meant uh, uh, Slovakian citizens. Uh, and uh, he encouraged uh, the church to make application. Uh, Slovakia is a, is a, a staunchly Catholic country uh, where even the, the Lutherans are uh, a, a substantial minority, the few that there were. At any rate, uh, after receiving the invitation to make the application, uh, uh, the church mobilized uh, not only its missionaries, but its former missionaries, uh, those who could speak Czech. And in particular, uh, one uh, young man, uh, Jonathan Tishi, uh, a native of Salt Lake and uh, former return missionary from Czechoslovakia, led a drive to obtain the 20,000 names. In a period of seven days, uh, extended eventually to uh, about 10 days, they obtained 30,000 
37, uh, yes, 37,000 signatures. What is, uh, or on the petition, what is unique about this is Slovakia having been a communist country where suppression was the norm and distrust was the norm, nobody would, very few would be disposed to sign their names to a petition that gave their name, their address, their government ID number, um, and other contact data that was required. And so mobilizing uh, members, but primarily young missionaries and return missionaries uh, in this period of 10 days, which is an absolute miracle, uh, obtained all these signatures to make sure that the application uh, packet was uh, absolutely uh, as clean as could be. Jonathan, Tishi, and others went through these thousands of petitions to eliminate those that were not completely filled in. It's, it's easy in a petition setting when you're out on the street getting, uh, getting names, uh, people to sign a petition, that you leave out some of the vital data. Um, and so they eliminated all the pages or all the entries that were um, uh, lacking, valid. yeah, that wouldn't qualify, and they still had uh, at least 27,000 valid ones. They bound these in black hardcover bindings with gold uh, embossing, very much like a corporate uh, uh, packet in, in commercial uh, commercial law. An annual report or something. Uh, uh, well, it even... But there were 10 of these, 10 of these thick volumes, and submitted them uh, to the director, this Dr. Jan Juron, the director of churches in the Ministry of Culture. And within 18 days, uh, because it had been so well done and verified, uh, in 18 days, the church had uh, the recognition that, that it needed. The faith element in this is that within a few days or weeks after the church was recognized, the parliament amended the law to read that you had to have 20,000 signatures of members of that organization applying for legal status. Well, at the time, we only had 325 members in all of Slovakia. We would have never qualified. So a window opened, and uh, we were able to get qualified, uh, and they call this uh, the Slovakian miracle for obvious reasons. Miracles abound if we have the eyes to see and ears to hear, and if we have people like the Lears collecting these stories for us. Uh, this is Latter-day Radio. We, on 1430 KLO World Class Talk, we have one last story to go before we finish up, which is only about two or three minutes. And her name was Swarupa. We were there. We all met Swarupa. The Lears came down from Frankfurt to do some history work with us in Geneva when my wife Christy and I were there. And on that, we all went to church that one day and Swarupa showed up. Doreen, why don't you tell us her story? Swarupa, um, from India, she had been a part of the um, Supreme Court in India. A lovely, uh, accomplished woman had a dream. She had a very strong dream 
course not a member of the church, but her dream was that she should know Jesus. And shortly after this dream that was really penetrating, she had some kind of issue with the blinds on her windows and had a serviceman from a drapery company come over. He comes in, his name plate on his shirt is Christian. And she said, I had a dream. What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, well, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You want to come to church with me this coming Sunday? And so, of course, she's going, yes. Well, Elder Lear and I happened to be there with the Gerards that Sunday. We had, um, Elder Lear and I had had an interview, and we were visiting in Geneva that one Sunday. Swarupa comes to me and kind of asks me if I would be her new best friend, thinking that I was a regular member there. And I just said, oh my goodness, I'm only here for this one Sunday, but let me take your email address. And so we stayed in touch. And I sent her videos from Brad Wilcox about great talks, and, and I told her about President Hinckley's idea of Eve, how she was the last part of creation and the most important and how important women are in this world today, and we had these wonderful emails back and forth. Well, this was April at the time when I met her. The missionaries and Greg Gerard um, taught her, and I know they... Um, asked for a July baptism date. Well, July came and went, and she wasn't quite ready. October rolls around. General conference. She watched our prophets and general authorities speak and was so touched and so convinced of the truthfulness of our church that she was instantly ready for baptism and today she is actually one of the Relief Society presidency in the Relief Society of that Geneva Ward. We'd like to tell you more about Swarupa and these other miracles. We've run out of time but tune in next week at 10 o'clock here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. I'd like to have the Lears back but we'll see. This podcast has been produced by Latter-day Radio.